This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Harvard historian Maya Drezanoff about her new book, Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World. It's a fine book, Maya, and one that serves a double purpose. Not only do we learn about the life and work of a great modern novelist, but we also learn that although Conrad died in 1924, he was describing the globally connected capitalist world order in which we now find ourselves ill at ease and far from home. You see him as one of us. Declare yourself amazed by what you call the prophetic sweep of his particular way of looking at the world. What is that particular way, and how does it help us read today's newspaper headlines? Here are some headlines from the last year. There's been upheaval in a republic in South America. There's been shipping accidents in the South China Sea and Southeast Asia. There's been violence in Central Africa. There's been terrorism in London. Each of those things is actually also a plot line in the novel by Joseph Conrad. In the four novels that you choose to discuss in detail in the book, what are those? So the novels that I talk about and that cover those things are uh, Nostromo, which is a gripping and extremely multi-layered novel about capitalism in Latin America. And it surveys the fortunes of uh, Latin American Republic as they rise and fall around the possession of a silver mine and the various international interests behind it. The novel that deals with the shipping accident is Lord Jim, which is one of many novels which Conrad set on a ship partly and at sea and in Southeast Asia, which drew very heavily on his own experiences as a sailor, which I'm sure we'll be getting to in the course of this conversation. Yes, we will. And uh, the novel that deals with violence in Central Africa is probably the one that's best known to readers today, and that is Conrad's short novel, Heart of Darkness, based on his own experiences yet again, in this case as a sailor going up and down the Congo River during the time of the Congo Free State, one of the most rapacious imperial regimes in human history. And finally, the novel that deals with terrorism in London is something that has deservedly gotten a bit of a second lease on life in recent years, deservedly but unfortunately, uh, because the novel tells the story of uh, an anarchist conspiracy to blow something up in London. It actually has, I think, two layers of resonance with uh, our world today. One of them is its dealings with terrorism and the targeting in particular in that novel of the Greenwich Observatory as a uh, conspicuous public location that will attract a lot of attention and something of the way that, that bombings and attacks have done in recent years in cities around the world. But it also deals with uh, Russian uh, plotting and the setting up of an agent provocateur in order to try to disrupt the workings of a liberal democracy. So it's uh, the, the levels of prescience in Conrad never cease to amaze me in that way that, that I can see even in a novel that I first approached as a document of terrorism. Now I'm seeing this whole uh, resonance with some of the stuff going on today about, about Russia and the West. Connecting those resonances with Conrad's life. I mean, he's born where? And, and I mean, his idea of uh, 
Russia is, it's one he knows firsthand. So tell me a little bit about his, his background and, you know, where he's born and uh, what was his name before he changed it to Conrad? One of the most important things that came to me as I was writing this book is that is that Conrad's novels are really overwhelmingly based on personal experience or real world incident. And that's why in my book, I spend a lot of time talking about his life. It's so central to this story. He was born Yusuf Theodor Conrad Korzhenyovsky in 1857 in the town of Berdichev, which is in Ukraine today, and uh, was part of the Russian Empire. And his parents were Poles. They belonged to a gentry class called the Shlachta. This was a class of kind of traditional landowners. Uh, and they were also people who were particularly committed to the restoration of a Polish nation state. The Polish state had been carved up in the late 18th century by the Austrians, by the Prussians, by the Russians. And ethnic Poles were living across these different empires. The Schlachta in particular, Conrad's parents among them, uh, many of them felt this sort of hereditary uh, need or, or calling to try to restore this old Polish nation. And so Conrad was raised as a subject of the Russian Empire in a family that was acutely conscious of the disappearance of this Polish nation. Uh, it was a very romanticized vision, it has to be said, of the old Polish nation. And they had a very kind of romantic vision of what they wanted back, one in which, of course, this hereditary landowner class would, would have special rights. Um, it was also a vision that was really embedded in literature. So uh, the, the poets uh, of the Polish romantic tradition, such as Adam Mickiewicz were uh, everyday figures in the Conrad household, so to speak, the Korzeniowski household, I should say. Um, young Conrad was uh, known to have memorized great reams of this romantic poetry at the behest of his parents. His father, Apollo Korzeniowski, was also a man of letters. He was a poet himself. He was a playwright. He translated things from uh, French into Polish. And he coupled his uh, literary activity with this committed nationalism. He wanted to use his writing, use his actions in order to try to reinstate a Polish nation. And it was with that objective that the family moved when Conrad was about three years old to Warsaw, where Apollo was going to start an underground newspaper that was going to be one of the different ways to galvanize the Polish community uh, to an uprising, which various nationalists were planning at that time. But a few weeks before the first paper came off the press, the Korzeniowski family was at home in their apartment in Warsaw. Conrad was probably asleep. It was in the middle of the night. And there was a rap on the door and czarist troops came bursting into the apartment. They arrested Apollo Korzeniowski on charges of sedition. And they carried him off to the prison in Warsaw called the Citadel, where he was locked up with a whole bunch of other political prisoners uh, and ultimately tried um, and convicted for nationalist uh, insurrectionary activity. In the wake of that, the whole family got exiled, uh, and they were sent off to the borders of Siberia, uh, Conrad at this point being three to four years old, his mother, Eva, 
uh, and his father, Apollo, all of them going off to this place in considerable uh, conditions of considerable physical discomfort. Uh, his parents both ended up contracting tuberculosis, uh, and they both ended up dying really very young, leaving Conrad at the age of 11, uh, already an orphan, an orphan both uh, to uh, kind of uh, the, the, the conditions of exile, but also in a sense to the lost cause, as it was turning out to be, of this Polish nationalism. All right. But, and between the ages of 11 and 16, he's still in where, Warsaw? He ends up being kind of shunted around. He's parentless. He's uh, looked after largely by a maternal uncle and by his mother's mother. He's partly in Krakow. He's partly in Ukraine. He's in Lviv for a little while. It's a really unsettled childhood, yeah. which I think is an important part of his story. Well, it is because the unsettled aspect shows up in all of the four novels that you're taking on from different angles. He becomes a sailor how? He, he, he leaves Poland, goes at the age of 16 to Marseille. Is that right? It is. So I think one of the things that's kind of funny about Conrad's story, there are various things in his story that are hard for people to explain. And one of them is that here's this 16-year-old who decides that rather than go into land management, rather than go to university, for example, what he really wants to do is become a sailor. Now, this is somebody who has grown up hundreds of miles from the ocean. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and so you might think that's a kind of odd choice, but I think that it makes a lot of sense when you put it up against this incredibly peripatetic and uh, traumatic childhood that he had, because this is a guy who is adrift before he ever sets foot on a ship. And for him, I think there's an incredible appeal of getting away from it all, getting away from this part of the world, getting away from the sites of personal trauma, perhaps, getting away from a set of political conditions, which uh, he's been raised from from before he can remember to, uh, to detest. Uh, worth noting here, by the way, that his first encounter with empire is, of course, the Russian empire, and yeah. he's a subject. Yeah. So he ends up going with his uncle's reluctant blessing, not long before his 17th birthday. He goes off to Marseille to train to be a sailor. He goes to Marseille because... He speaks fluent French, like many Poles of his social class. There is a Polish emigre community in France, and so there's connections one way or another that his family can mobilize. And, of course, it's a major seaport, and uh, the French have a huge merchant navy. And so through these connections, one way or another, he ends up finding himself at the age of 17 on a ship going off to the Caribbean. All right, so he spends what, two or three years sailing in the French Merchant Marine, and then then he goes to England to board and become a sailor on an English ship. And is that when he learns English? He's one of the great, in my mind, stylists in the English language, but it's his third language. Yeah, you know, we've gone this far into the conversation without even remarking on that stunning fact. You know, if you want to just find one thing to say about Conrad and how he is an exceptional figure. I think that's it. It's that he's one of the great writers of his times in English, and he only learns it in his 20s. It's pretty stunning. So yeah, he's a sailor in, on French ships. And after a few years of that, uh, the market closes up for him. And it closes up for him because technically, he's not supposed to be sailing on French ships without having the formal permission right, of, of the, the Russian, Russian authorities. Yeah. Right. And this is, again, one of these ways in which we can see some of these issues of 
empire and belonging and citizenship and uh, labor markets all kind of coming together in Conrad's life in the way that, of course, they do very much in people's lives today. Um, and so he ends up not being able to find work. He also is running out of money. He's uh, also hit with an attack of what we can only call now, I think, clinical depression. Uh, and in fact, it culminates in him having a suicide attempt in Marseille, uh, an episode that I think a lot of biographers don't say a lot about because they're interested in talking about other things. It's in also hard life, to explain, right? <laughs> it's hard to explain, but I think it's critical to note that Conrad goes off to England within months, weeks, really, of the suicide attempt in France. So I think we, again, need to just put this through line of a kind of personal psyche into the picture. You also point out that in his novel, 17 characters commit suicide. That's right. I mean, this is a this is a guy who's dark. This is a guy who is afflicted time and again with depression throughout his life, uh, has several breakdowns, and whose vision, it has to be said, and his sense of the world is uh, could be described even by some as nihilistic. And uh, we need to put this into the to the picture. And he stays as a sailor, rising in rank to a mate and captain has their certificates and for 22 years. And the first ships he sails on are sailing ships. Yeah. Right? So he's in the British Merchant Marine for most of his sailing career. It's the biggest in the world. It is the most open to outsiders. He doesn't need to get permission from authorities there. In fact, a rather high percentage uh, into the 30 percent mark are uh, of sailors in the British Merchant Marine are actually continental Europeans uh, uh, at that time. Um, so he works his way up, uh, but he's doing it at a time when the industry itself is undergoing a lot of change because steamships are coming in. And as the steamships are coming in, they have lots of advantages over sailing ships. They're much more regular. They're more comfortable. Uh, they can go against the wind. This is particularly important when you're dealing with the Suez Canal, which opens yeah. in 1869 and which a sailing ship can't really navigate very well for reasons to do with the currents and the winds. So the steamships are on the, their way up. And the sailing ships are gradually getting displaced. But with them, it's one of these technological shifts that is easy to celebrate in the same way it's easy to celebrate the rise of the railroad over carriages or something like that. Um, but with it comes a whole set of occupational changes because on a steamship, you need engineers. On a sailing ship, you have people who are handling the sails. It's a, it's a very different kind of work. And Conrad belongs to that last generation of people who are trained up in the sailing ship and who see their skills getting displaced by technological change. So the market that he's in is, you know, on the one hand, very vibrant because here's all these steamships. But on the other hand, he's on the losing end of it. Uh, finds yeah, it harder I mean, and harder to get a job. But that's a theme that uh, runs through his work is that the world of sail and the world of steam. And, and he, it, talk a little about the way he frames that a, a, in a symbolic way. For Conrad, that difference between the sailing ship and the steamship becomes more than just a difference between two kinds of technologies. It becomes really a difference between two ways of life. And he develops an idea of the sailing ship as representing the ideal form of community for him. It uh, is a, com a community in which people are committed to a kind of skill, a kind of craft, which is a word that he uses over and over in relation to 
sailing ships. They're committed to values of honor. They are in touch with nature. And they, for all their individual uh, foibles, et cetera, et cetera, the crew of a sailing ship, as he sees it, are able to set aside their individual desires in favor of some larger purpose when called upon to do so. It's a very romanticized vision, it has to be said. Uh, it is, of course, based on a male community. Um, I think in his, in his vision of the sailing community, it's very tempting to draw lots of analogies to the way that people see technological change now as maybe driving out certain kinds of community values. And I think in this way, Conrad has a lot to tell us, but I don't want to underplay the degree to which it's very nostalgic and uh, marked in certain ways. By contrast, the steamship to him is this mechanized thing. It's a, it's a chugging along almost independently of human uh, control. Um, humans are there to serve it as much as it's there to serve humans. He sees all of those values of community and honor and craft as being eroded by the steamship, as being almost irrelevant to the world of the steamship. He sees selfishness instead. He sees uh, cutting off of men from nature, cutting off of men from each other. And for him, this kind of uh, atomization and this sense that that bigger values are getting compromised is, uh, is, is essential to a kind of general distrust that he has for the things that in his own era passed for progress or civilization, in quotes. Well, there's a great deal of that feeling in the world at the moment. Very much. And I think, again, here, Conrad has something to tell us. And again, I don't want to underplay the extent to which he's pretty nostalgic and yeah. his vision is a bit kind of in certain ways conservative and backward. But I think there's something to it as well. And I think that nowadays, when you look at some of the debates about technology, people who question the rise of certain forms of digitization or social media are often written off as Luddites, right? But I think that there's a middle road, or I think there's a different road, I should say. But there's also the, you know, his sense, I think he says somewhere, talks about the Russian Empire as a machine in which we are all cogs, and that the whole world is becoming a machine. That's the way he sees the capitalist world order. Interestingly, it's actually his father who makes that analogy. But yeah. Conrad later himself will make a similar analogy. There's a quite well-known letter he writes to a friend in the late 1890s where he likens the human condition in a way to a knitting machine, a mechanical loom, which will go on clacking and clacking no matter what individual people do with it or try to do against it. All right, that theme appears in Nostromo, however, and I, I want to get to Nostromo. And, but before that, I, I think we have to say a few words about his coming off the ship uh, in 18, whatever it is, 1894, begins to write novels based on his experience in the Southeast Asia, in the Malay archipelago and so on, which are all wonderful stories. I mean, I can myself remember at a very early age, reading Outpost of the Islands and Almeyer's Folly and, and uh, my whole notion of Southeast Asia based on Conrad's novels. But put into the context, you know, he's he's now on land. It's 1894, and over the course of the next 20 years, he writes 20-odd novels and novellas and many stories, also a magnificent collection of letters. 
So we have a lot of insight into the working of his mind. What is his attitude to, I mean, you have a point about what he thinks, talk about you know, what's history and what's fiction. I mean, that's a, myself tend to think that, that in, a, in a really good novel, I, I can learn more history than I can in most academic histories. You don't write academic history, so I don't feel that I'm offending you by saying that. <laughs> I mean, I learn more about the world by reading Nostromo or Flaubert's Sentimental Education than I do from many, many textbooks. But Conrad had the same idea, did he not? Or similar idea. There's a line Conrad says, which is, fiction is history, human history, or it is nothing. Yes, yeah. And he has a lot of things to say about this, and sometimes they skew in slightly different directions. But uh, one of the things that Conrad was very committed to doing was trying to represent on the page what he believed to be a kind of reality around him. Now, I use the word reality slightly guardedly because he's often associated with a technique called uh, impressionism, literary impressionism. Uh, and he also writes in another text about how his purpose is to make you see, to make you hear, to make you feel. And I think that gets at something that's been important for me to think about as I write about Conrad and indeed as I write history, which is where are these lines? You know, we now know, uh, I think as historians, that Everything that we write is, of course, a narrative. Everything we look at is a, nar is, is a narrative. Uh, everything that we put together in our uh, soundly researched, empirically supported histories is nonetheless channeled through our own interpretation, and we're basing it on other people's interpretations. Well, I mean, when you started to, you, you talk in the prologue that when you're preparing to write this book, uh, you travel uh, along some of the very paths that Conrad had meant Tell me, I mean. Well, exactly. So I think that the I think that the key difference between history and fiction, in a certain way, is that a historian will never make things up. Yeah. Uh, a historian doesn't go into somebody's mind in the way that a novel and a novelist does. So to me, the appeal of using fiction as a historical source is that it does go into the mind from that time, you know, and you yeah. have to interpret it the way you would any other historical source, but it gives you that kind of inside out look. As to traveling, I own, as it were, the consciousness, self-consciousness, self-awareness of my own perspective as a writer. That is, I know that I can do as thorough research as possible in order to try to get a sense of how things were. But I also know that it is me who is doing this and that there's no way that simply by orchestrating my prose in a certain way or something like that, I can pretend that I'm not a part of the story. So for me, traveling to the places is kind of a, has a twofold value. One of them is that we can never talk to our sources when we're historians of the, of a hundred years ago, let's say they're long dead. I'll never know what Conrad sounded like. I'll never know what he uh, smelled like. I'll never know what it was like to watch him at the other end of a room. I will never be able to walk through a street that was the same as the street that he walked through. But versions of those places still exist today, and vestiges from those times 
are sedimented into our own. So I think there's value in going to see places and well, unpacking I mean, you, you, them. Yeah, you did that. I mean, in you, the same you, way. Yeah, you traveled on the Congo River. Yeah, and then right, and then the other value I think is to put myself into these situations and think about it. And so I took a number of trips for this book. I took three. Uh, the first one was a container ship voyage. I wanted to get a sense of what it was like to spend an extended period of time at sea, because that was such a foundational part of Conrad's life, to say nothing of his work. He was a sailor for 20 years and at sea for you know, roughly half the time of that. So I sailed from Hong Kong to England. I spent four weeks at sea. And over that time, I got a feel for what it was like to be on a ship day in, day out, that... I could never have gotten just by reading books. We talked already about the difference between sail and steam in Conrad. I realized having taken that container ship that it was also going to be really important for me to get a sense of how a tall sailing ship operates because it was so central to Conrad's career. So I also spent a week on a tall ship, which is run by an organization based out of Woods Hole called the Sea Education Association. And they run tall ships mostly for American college students to learn how to sail. And I got a taste of that, again, uh, something I could never have really experienced uh, vicariously through the page with the same visceral reality that I did when I was leaning over the railing and vomiting into the Irish Sea as I was right. uh, repeatedly on that ship. Uh, and then finally, I took a voyage down the Congo River. It's the most famous or infamous, as the case may be, journey that Conrad took uh, for readers today when he went up and down the Congo in 1890 on a Belgian steamship. Uh, and I went down the Congo today on a small boat that was pushing in front of it a whole bunch of barges. This is the primary way of uh, moving goods and, to an extent, people up and down the Congo today, and spent two weeks on this vessel, which also gave me an insight into the feel and the look of the landscape, which is important in Conrad's writing, and also something of, of course, what's changed, which is a lot since Conrad's day, but some of the ways also in which the boat and the shore, the river bank, are interconnected in ways that Conrad doesn't actually fully acknowledge in his writing. And so it was an interesting way for me to see something that was a kind of long embedded historical reality of lots of codependence, as it were, between ship and shore, uh, but also to see some of the things that Conrad doesn't write about, which I think is one of the other things you get from going to the places. You see what's left out in your sources as well. Let's talk about the Nostromo. I mean, it, there is something that is really not based on Conrad's experience. I mean, it, it's set in South America, uh, which I I'm guessing, is, is, but it's a country that he mostly makes up. I mean, his own travels to the Caribbean when he's sailing out of Marseille for the French are, are very brief. So he bases his description in, of the scene in the country that he calls Costa Guana on his reading and on his talking to friends of his who were very familiar with, with South America. But it, it, to me, it, it's, it's extraordinarily convincing. It's a really interesting question about Nostromo and why he chose to write a novel about a place that he'd never been and how he did it and why it did seem to people to be so convincing. 
I think one of the reasons it seemed at the time to people to be so convincing is because he based his picture of South America on exactly the sources that his readers were also reading. So, of course, it seemed convincing because it was a kind of uh, re self-reproducing discourse. At the same time, I think it's he, he knew enough as a person who read the papers and knew what was what in the world that uh, he knew that in order to write the kind of novel that he wanted to write, which was a novel about displaced Europeans, among others, um, about multinational capitalism, about, uh, well, I should say, rather than displaced Europeans, settler colonialism, uh, about multinational capitalism and about a certain kind of political upheaval in a republic. He knew that South America was the place to do that because that was the place in the world that had this configuration of things. And so I see the novel as being on the one hand, of course, about a place he hadn't visited in person, but it's also based on a whole bunch of themes and issues that he had seen manifested elsewhere that he had thought about for decades by the time he finally sat down to write it. And I think that also infuses the novel with that sense oh, of, kind I, of reality. Very much so. I mean, he has, uh, he has a deep-seated sense of fatality concerning the man-inhabiting world. You know, he never could uh, find in any man's book or any man's talk anything convincing enough to stand up for. So he's not a romantic idealist and very much of, uh, of a realist, but but to my mind, and and I gather also to yours, with with a very penetrating insight into human character. It's a book, I think, that's very much about nationalism and imperialism, and it's about nationalism partly in the form, largely, I would say, in the form that he saw it with his parents, which is to say, this kind of nineteenth-century romantic nationalism. When he started the book, he said it was mostly about Italians. And he had in mind the Garibaldini who were in South America, who'd been followers of Garibaldi and that great 19th century romantic national tradition. It's a book about imperialism, though, in a different sense from the one that he experienced as a child, which was the Russian imperialism of the Tsar. It's a book about imperialism in the way that it was coming into being in the 20th century. And that's the way that empire becomes an ism through Marx and later Hobson, the British political economist, and then Lenin, and that's imperialism as a form of capitalism. Uh, and what he's describing in Nostromo, I think, is exactly the same kind of thing that he was seeing at work in, say, Singapore, and certainly in Congo, where there's a cycle of investment and extraction um, that's being guided by people like this fellow Holroyd, the character in Nostromo, sitting in an office in San Francisco. I want you to read the speech that, uh, or the remarks that Holroyd makes uh, to the owner of the silver mine in uh, Casta Guano. First of all, explain who, you explain who Holroyd is. He's uh, an American financier, representative of the, you know, the capitalist global world order be equivalent to our big bankers in either New York or London or Hong Kong. Uh, the mine, to get it up and running, needs capital, needs money to get it productive. So the idealists or the people that are hoping for a better world in custom Guana have to rely on the capitalist banks to make their dream come true. 
Gould is the man who is making, trying to make the dream come true. And this is what is said to him by the American financier. Of course, someday we shall step in. We're bound to. But there's no hurry. Time itself has got to wait on the greatest country and the whole of God's universe. We shall be giving the word for everything. Industry, trade, law, journalism, art, politics, and religion from Cape Horn clear over to Smith Sound, and beyond, too, if anything worth taking hold of turns up at the North Pole. We shall run the world's business, whether the world likes it or not. The world can't help it, and neither can we, I guess. Well, there we are. I mean, you can't get more uh, closer to the uh, not only the Bush doctrine, but also the Trump doctrine. I think I'm going to leave it right there. Um, I, I, I really love the book, and, and I learned a great deal, not only about Conrad, but also about the world in which we live. Thanks so much for the conversation. We've been talking to Maya Jathanoff about her new book, Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad and the Global Order. And it's a truly wonderful book. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.